So the words on the screen, are they familiar? Nod your head. Yes, yes, guy, very familiar. We've been reading them endlessly the entire week. First letter of the Apostle John contains these introductory words. The original 12 followers of Jesus, John was the the last uh, living one at the time that he wrote these words. You remember he was a fisherman? And uh, he was called by Jesus to leave the family fishing business and then to spend the next three plus years walking all over Palestine with this uh, who some thought was an itinerant rabbi. He became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem after persecution began to, to grow and then scattered the church. Rome came in and crushed Jerusalem. He became a church planter in Asia Minor. And after about 40 years of living in obedience to Jesus and making many disciples, he wrote three letters to believers who were scattered throughout the region, who were living with the challenge of a a growing heresy, often referred to as Gnosticism. It comes from from the Greek word gnosis, knowledge. Uh, People claiming that they had... A, a secret knowledge of God, secret insights to, to what God wanted of people, and, and just a, uh, a, a disregard for the work of Jesus. And very simply put in, in just a, a little nutshell, the Gnostics were great at believing that sin is not a problem, and that Jesus, if he came at all, uh, did not come to save sinful people. So there was all kinds of doubts being sown in the lives of the believers in this first century that revolved around the centrality of Jesus and the centrality of Jesus' work on the cross. And John had spent his life convincing people that sin is a serious problem. And so you can imagine that that this elder statesman of the faith uh, felt pretty intensely uh, these emotions regarding the Gnostics and, and the way that they were leading people astray. Uh, he believed that, that this was a serious problem. It's in John's Gospel that we find recorded those words of John the Baptist. You remember when John saw Jesus, when Jesus was coming for his baptism from John, he announced, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John records for us his own presence at the crucifixion, where he watched Jesus suffer and die, and he heard the request of Jesus to his Father that he not hold those who put him there accountable for that. So those words on the screen are filled, I think, with great conviction. We need to read them both hearing and feeling the conviction of John to encourage God's people who are being influenced by false teaching, those who minimize the serious reality of sin and even suggest that that Jesus is not who Christians believe him to be. After all, they would say after 40 years, who's to know that it's not just an urban legend? Well, John knows. John knows the passion in his words, referring to Jesus as the word of life. That is the one who is life, the one who gives life, the one who is the author of life. He writes, 
we, that's John, and probably referencing those perhaps who are with him wherever he is writing these letters, somewhere in Ephesus, and perhaps a reference to the other apostles who likely are dead by that time, but, but John is always thinking in terms of us. We, we heard him. We heard Jesus. We saw Jesus with our own eyes. We touched Jesus with our own hands. John is saying, trust me, folks. He did come. He did come. I spent three plus years traipsing around the countryside with him. He lived. He died. He rose again. And that changes everything. So there's great passion in, in what John is expressing. Convinced to the core of his being after decades of serving Jesus that Jesus' death on the cross took away the penalty for his sin and that Jesus' death on the cross will do the same for anyone who puts their faith in him. And John knows that to minimize the significance of what Jesus did on the cross, to minimize the seriousness of sin, is to make a mockery of Christ's death. That's John's heart. You might recognize the name Kevin Miller if you're a Christianity Today reader. He's the editor for, uh, edit, he's one of the, excuse me, vice president for editorial development. And he describes this visit to a friend's house one time where he is watching their pet hamster known as Hammy. He writes, Hammy has a warm neck or shavings to curl up in. He has a water bottle to drink from. And best of all, he has a wheel that he can run inside of. He has everything that a hamster could want or need. But Hammy refuses to run inside his running wheel. Instead, he has come up with what he thinks is a better idea. Hammy climbs up on top of the wheel. He turns over on his back on the top of the wheel, stretches out. Gradually, the wheel starts to turn. And Hammy's entire body rolls with it, head first to the bottom of the cage. Clunk. Hammy's head smacks on the bottom of the cage. He gets up. He shakes himself off apparently hurt and unexpected. But what does Hammy do? Well, he climbs back up on top of the wheel. He turns over, stretches himself out, and gets ready to clunk his head again and again and again. And so, Miller asks, why would a hamster who has everything he needs disregard the wheel's proper use and do something that only hurts himself? And why even after that would he do it again? and again, and again. <laughs> and then Miller asks this question. The bigger dilemma is why do humans, who are supposedly smarter than hamsters, do the same thing? John would say that's because of sin, and that's what sin does it blinds us to the true nature of our human condition. And in Jesus, there is a way for us to be set free from the absurdity of living over and over and over again. In other words, there's a way to get off the stupid wheel and quit hurting ourselves again and again. To actually live the life for which we were created. Which, by the way, is not the individualistic American Christian life that we are sort of molded to think in terms of, but it's actually, for John, a life 
together as the people of God. So, let's, uh, let's put up our text for this morning, and we're going to stand and read together. It's excellent preparation, I think, this morning for communion. Let's consider what I, I think John believes is the greatest concern with the ideas that are being sown by the Gnostics into the minds of God's people. Okay, let's stand and read together. Sound familiar since we read it last week together. But here we go again. Good stuff. That my sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord for us. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right. Little word association here. Ready? Sam. Fellowship. What comes to mind? Community. Chad. Fellowship. <laughs> Together. Okay. I'll just throw it out. Fellowship. What comes to you? People. What was it? Church. Say again. Food. I I hope somebody would say that. Good coffee. Oh, wait, no, not, that's usually not a church fellowship. Sorry. Um, what else comes to mind? Sharing. Fun. Teresa. Authenticity. Monica. The fellowship. The fellowship of the ring. We're on a mission. All right. All right. Good stuff. Okay. Rachel, can we put up the next one? Good words. Very theological term, the messing up of the fellowship, you know, between, you know, God's people and, and God and his people. Let's, good stuff. Anybody else just want to add something or we're going to move? Good stuff. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Um, you have probably somewhere along your pilgrimage in, in the Christian faith, unless you are just brand new to it or perhaps haven't, uh, haven't become a follower of Jesus yet, more than likely you've heard the Greek word koinonia. Familiar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of those words that, that we all know. It's the word that we translate into English as fellowship. Uh, I was remembering a, an intentional Christian community that lived in Springfield, Massachusetts, where we were for so many years, and they called themselves Koinonia Fellowship. So that was fellowship, fellowship. Yeah, definitely a redundancy, but, but well-intentioned. Knew a lot of those people who were a part of that fellowship, fellowship. And they, they were so intentional about wanting their lives together in Christ to be more than just friendships and coffee and donuts at Sunday mornings before or after worship. They, they understood and I, and I loved that about those that I knew in the community. They understood that there was, there was something more at stake in that word, fellowship. It's one of those words that I think gets diluted in our Christian experience. And, and one of the reasons, quite frankly, I think that happens is we live in a culture that's, that's easy. We, we live in a culture that in our lifetime has been persecution-free for the most part. And, and, and we talk, of course, that, that that may be changing as we experience increasing tolerance for, for anything that, that smells or smacks 
Judeo-Christian values. Some of that, unfortunately, that persecution, that growing persecution, is fueled by the actions of those who, who claim to be Christ followers, but, but frankly don't necessarily talk or act like he would. But, but that's not all. I, I think it's also due to the reality of just spiritual warfare. The historical, biblical reality of the battle between good and evil, light and darkness, to use John's metaphor. So in the first century, when Christianity was marginalized from day one, fellowship was understood in a way that is more true to the essence of the word. When we get those glimpses of, of the, the believers, that first church in Jerusalem gathered in Acts 2 and Acts 4, we read that they were devoted to the fellowship the fellowship, the only fellowship, and devotion to it meant, wow, if, if I'm not with these people, I'm in trouble. You know, they're, they're my strength, they're my encouragement, uh, they are a source of, of joy. They were devoted to the fellowship because they, they, were, they were by far uh, the minority. So the basic etymology of that word that we use, koinonia, it really means a participation. It's the idea of sharing in something. And there is, it's an interesting word, there's an intimacy that implies a transformation that comes for those who share. The root word behind fellowship, the, the oldest root word, means having in common. And it's rendered in some of the ancient literature to, uh, to refer to, to have communion with the altar. In other words, there's an idea that I'm identifying myself with, with what I worship and I am becoming a part of that. Some commentators use that idea to become a part of that which is shared. Again, that idea that there is transformation that, that happens in the sharing. Now, I mentioned last Sunday that, that in reading these letters of John, it's important to hear in them some of the things that, that he records in his gospel because it was, it was his life with Jesus that I think directly shaped John's theology. John, as I've said, is very Jesus-focused. John is the only gospel writer that records the teaching and the prayer of Jesus on that last night that they were together before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is praying for his followers. Rachel can put that next slide. He's prayed for his original follower. And then he says this, my prayer is not for them alone. Now, remember, the disciples are sitting there and they're listening to Jesus pray my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, unified, one, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. 
John is the only gospel writer that records those words. And I think, personal opinion, that it's those, those words of Jesus' prayer that are driving so much of, especially this first letter. He wants his readers to have fellowship with one another and with him and all believers wherever they might be and our fellowship, he says, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Those words of Jesus echoing in John's head 35 to perhaps 40 years after that. And how does that happen? Well, John says, you recognize that, that God is light. There, there is no darkness that's a metaphor for sin. There's no darkness in him at all. John wants his readers to understand that there's no hint of sin in God. And those who claim to know God must understand that living in relationship with him comes through the son who gave his life as atonement for sin. And if we claim to be without sin, we lie. Because John's thinking is the very reason that Jesus came into the world was to fix the sin problem of humanity. And if we say that we have no sin, then John says we're lying and we're making God a liar because God says we do sin and sent his son for that very reason. So I think what John is really concerned about here is the posture of the heart, the intention of a person. To accept the teaching of the Gnostics makes a mockery of the very reason that Jesus came to earth. And it does more than simply hurt the individual. And this is where it, it, it gets, I think, kind of stretching. It does more than simply hurt the individual who might embrace that false teaching. It hurts those to whom that individual is joined in fellowship. I don't even like to think that way. Because... We're, I'm so individualistic. I don't like to think that, that my sin, which of course are few, my sins, but that my sins impact you. Do you ever think about your sins impacting me? I hope you do. Zach, Zach, you have. This is stretching stuff, again, because of the idea, the definition of fellowship. It's oneness with God. It's oneness with one another. It's oneness with, with the mystery of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. And so it's more than just simply hurt the individual, you know, keep falling off the hamster wheel, who might embrace that false teaching. It, it, it's, it's part of an impact to the fellowship for those who've been made one in Christ, co-participants in the life of God, there, there is a fracture when sin is minimized rather than owned and faced and confessed. Now, how many of us have known 1 John 1.9 since we can remember? Those of us who probably grew up in the church, yeah. It's one of those verses that, that we've known forever. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just. And will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I don't know if this comes as a surprise to you, but John is, is talking about 
God's people, plural. John is using the plural pronouns there. He's not, he's not saying, you know, if, if I confess my sin, but if, if we confess our sins, those who have a relationship with Jesus are those who John says understand the importance of confession. Confessing daily. Why? Well, so that, so that we can, can stop hurting ourselves on the stupid hamster wheel of life because to think that sin doesn't hurt us is a lie of the enemy. And, and no doubt that that's what John is thinking, but, but more than that, it's, it's the consequences that come for the community of believers. The possibility that, that, that sin breeds sin or that, that sort of a, a disregard for the seriousness of sin in my life may, may breed that same disregard for sin in, in someone else's life. But as followers of Jesus, we, we don't judge sin by its consequences in terms of, well, this sin is greater than this sin, we, I think we have to judge it according to, to what it does to our hearts. And that's where confession becomes so huge. Sin brings grief to the Holy Spirit and dishonors the name of God. And to think that, that even just a little sin does not matter is buying the lie. John knows that confession is essential to our relationship to God. And to confess is to agree with God that Jesus really did come and that he really was needed and that we really were in a desperate situation as fallen people. And even though we are forgiven and redeemed, many of us who are followers of Jesus, sin still calls to our hearts. And it does so in a multitude of ways. And it causes us... In essence, when we disregard it or when we play it down or when we're not even open to recognizing that, that it's possibly contrary to the life that Jesus lived and calls us to live, when we don't even recognize it, it makes a mockery of Jesus and the very reason for which he came. So if we are one, unified with one another, in fellowship with God, then what does that do to our body when we knowingly disregard confession, when we play down sin? It puts something between us and God and between us. Is it possible that we are causing pain for one another's lives by the sins that we let slide in our lives? I wondered this week, is it possible that, that I am more Gnostic in the life that I live than I want to admit? Life empowered by the Spirit of God will produce a life that is remarkably similar to Jesus in values and actions, in thought. But sin according to Paul in Ephesians and 1 Thessalonians, quenches the Spirit. It, it grieves the Spirit. And, and both of those exhortations come in the context of body life and how God's people are thinking and speaking and acting uh, in ways that, that he 
believes are sinful toward one another. So what's our lesson this morning? As we, as we move to communion, I think confession is important for our spiritual health individually and, and collectively. God is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sin and, and to cleanse us from all that is unrighteous. It's so interesting that, that John doesn't say, if we ask God to forgive us, he will forgive us. That's true, of course. But he says, if we confess, if we confess, if we admit, yes, God I have more of a heart problem than I want to think. I, I live and I act less like Jesus than, than I know that I want to. John says, he will forgive, he will cleanse. That is such healthy stuff, to confess and be forgiven, to confess and be cleansed. I think there are two ways that John is emphasizing the same point. So sisters and brothers, I think this is, this is where we start, according to John. If we're embracing sin in our lives, those things that are contrary to the life of Jesus, his attitudes and his actions, then, then we're making a mockery of Jesus' death and calling God a liar. And if that is happening, then our life in Christ is not anywhere near what it could be. And, and who knows but that we might be holding back blessings from God, not only upon ourselves, but upon brothers and sisters whom are partakers of God along with us. So confession is agreeing with God. It is recognizing that God knows that we have no secrets that we keep from him because there is nothing that he does not know. And so it seems appropriate that Perhaps this morning we just take a few minutes before we, we come to the table and do some confessing. Individually, this morning, I'm not asking you to share out loud. That's probably too big of a step for us. Certainly too big of a step for me. But would you just uh, quiet your hearts for a few moments and, and consider the elements on this table that we believe to be uh, symbolic of the body and blood of Jesus that was shed for our sins. Before we come willy-nilly to that table or just come perhaps out of habit, it's because we what we do, let's consider. Perhaps sin in our life that the Holy Spirit wants to bring to mind and to prompt us to confess. Let's do so for just a few minutes.